Many years ago, I had a girlfriend who asked me to move with her to a fabled place far away. I wasn't given a lot of time to think about it, but for a couple of days I mulled over her ultimatum and tried to imagine myself as a resident of Venice. Evidently, I had only a few scraps from which I might try to build this fantasy. For example, I knew my girlfriend could resume her previous summer's work at an art gallery. Apparently, she had access to an apartment in some convenient location, although where exactly, I couldn't say. I seemed to remember that there was a bar nearby, about which she'd told several stories. Its proprietor may have been a man named Marco, who for some reason I associated with an Italian insult that perhaps meant donkey. But then maybe that bar was in Bologna, where my girlfriend had also once lived. And maybe Marco was too. So I did not have a very solid vision of Venice. But it had been said that the apartment had a little terrazzo, So I pictured myself on the balcony there in the mornings, drinking coffee, just after my girlfriend had left for work. And this was simple enough to conjure up. I would be enjoying solitude in a strange situation, as I have done often enough. The movement and noise of the morning's shared, hurried activities would rush out the door, and I would be left alone, at rest with my own thoughts. I didn't assume that this apartment was on any of the canals, nor within sight of any of the city's grandiose landmarks. The view from the terrazzo, the view in my head that is, the view I was making up, it was obscured by something, a blunt and ugly bit of architecture, like a neighbour's wall, or infrastructure that might have been unlikely in such a city, like a shed or a power box. We might have been in a convenient place, but not somewhere central. Not in my mind. Because I had never been anywhere central in my life. The reason my lover had raised the prospect of relocation to Venice was that her visa in my neck of the woods was about to expire. Having arranged to rendezvous in Europe a few times, she'd come to visit me. I guess she accepted that it was necessary to travel all the way to where I lived in order to have a proper crack at our relationship. But I am from Tasmania. And for some people, staying on my distant island for months at a stretch can cause some anxiety. And I guess I should admit that I also have a tendency to stress out anyone who cares for me. Truth be told, I didn't understand these matters at the time. Born on the peripheries, I am familiar with distance, and nothing gives me more comfort than the remoteness of my island. Later I cottoned on to the fact that in her home city my lover had been within an hour's flight of three continents. A journey in any direction would take her somewhere completely different and new. But coming to Tasmania was like entering a cul-de-sac. There was only one point of ingress, and it was also the only way to exit. I have since come to see how visitors might feel a little closed in here. On top of that, she was several aeroplanes and at least an entire day away from her family, from most of her friends from her career, and from almost all of her history. So too would I be, of course, if I were to move to Europe. I could try very hard to make a home for myself there, but it seemed to me that it would never quite be so. Indeed, in various ways, Venice was the summary of all that I could never be.
I have actually been to Venice. I was there for a single afternoon when I was 23 years old. From the north, I flew to the adjacent airport, which is memorably named after the traveller and storyteller Marco Polo. I don't think I had a window seat, but I remember glimpses of the Alps across the row. White spikes rising up towards the small apertures along the fuselage. Much of northern Europe had been coated with ice as well. But once we'd crossed the crest of that magnificent mass of mountains, I could look down and see garden green spreading out in the foothills. Here, within Kui of the Mediterranean, spring was beginning. I couldn't now describe to you exactly the procedure for getting to Venice from the airport. I remember that the train station Mestre was an important junction. In my mind's eye I see a garrulous and well-dressed father with his daughter by the baggage carousel. Perhaps it caught my attention and stayed in my memory, because it was a stereotype I held, something I wanted to see in Italy. Gregarious citizens of a society largely comprised of good-looking people. I also remember the bright yellow tint of the light as I waited on the train platform. I think that I asked someone to confirm that I was in the right part of the station, probably for a sense of companionship as much as for assurance that I'd got my ducks properly in a row. I don't know at what point the public transport ended, but soon enough, it became a journey on foot. I had no actual destination. I wasn't staying a night in Venice. I would walk a circuitous route and be back at the train station by nightfall for another uncertain ride. Yet the indirect routes that sneak between the apartments of Venice seem to lead somewhere, as if by their own predetermined destiny. Believe it or not, I don't think I actually knew about the existence of La Piazza di San Marco, St. Mark's Square, which of course is one of the great landmarks of European tourism. It's where I ended up, whether I meant to or not. In the meantime, I was left feeling like I was wandering through an image from childhood, its maze of interconnected alleyways linking up to narrow footbridges over canals plied by gondoliers, all of which brought to mind a cartoon image of an unknown origin. I suppose I'd heard the name of Venice in a thousand different stories before I ever got there, although when exactly the city first popped up in my field of awareness, I cannot say. Like New York or Paris or London, Venice is a place we take for granted. No Venetian is ever asked to defend the status of their city. And now that I say the word Venetian, I realise that I first heard it from my mum as she obsessed over home decor. We had Venetian blinds, you see. These can be found in Tasmania, but I bet nothing Tasmanian can be found in Venice. This sort of thing stands out when you're from somewhere like Tassie. For us, an explanation is almost always necessary. You're often told that you're the first Tasmanian a person has ever met. Occasionally the first time they've ever heard of Tasmania is when you've uttered its name. And I doubt anyone from Venice knows this experience. The pathways broadened into promenades, and the irresistible route zigged and zagged through innumerable pedestrians who made bottlenecks at bridges. I twisted my torso and stretched my lanky legs out to squeeze by them. As I say, I couldn't tell you what my itinerary was that day in Venice. I couldn't take you back there. I just know I got to St Mark's Square. 
I remember the cathedral as if from a photograph in which my haste is evident, the horizon horribly askew, like I'd been bumped in the process of pressing down the shutters. It's as though I aimed my eyes carelessly at the cathedral and scurried on swiftly. They say that Venice was settled by fearful villagers along the north of the Adriatic Sea, who'd heard that Attila the Hun was on his way. They fled to this small collection of unattractive islands, marinating in a brackish lagoon like some sort of savoury dish. The refugees here perhaps reasoned that no terrorist would bother chasing them to such unimportant outposts. The islands offered asylum, and quickly the new residents resumed their lives on the briny banks of the lagoon, establishing trading posts. We should not be surprised to find that from such beginnings, an obstinately idiosyncratic culture was born. For me, the challenge is to imagine the lagoon underneath the city. If nowadays I was to spend the afternoon in Venice, that's what I'd focus on. I've heard an indigenous man speak of all cities as scabs. Underneath the hard carapace of the built environment, all the bitumen and glass, the old rhythms of the land still exist. In Venice, what lies beneath is mostly marsh and mud and salt water. What ought to be an interesting city for an ecologist. Despite all the slabs of cement, all the human-made alterations and artifice, there must still be many situations in which other textures of life are evident. The tides and the weather, marine birds and mollusks, insects and fish. I think now that from my vantage point on the terrazzo, I mightn't have seen anything much of interest. But during the days while my lover was still at work, I could have gone out searching for places where those first settlers drove timber spars through the mud, creating the pavilions on which they would live. I could watch for clues that we were on a cluster of islands. I would learn to discern the lagoon's moods, Watch for where the snowmelt streams start swirling with salt within the estuaries. I can imagine befriending a cormorant, whom I would have found sunning himself on a dock somewhere, his wings outstretched like a criminal to be crucified. If there are actually cormorants in Venice, that is. I don't know that for sure, but I reckon there must be. Once you know it, it should be easy to picture the islands huddled beneath Venice. Even with everything that's built over them, the life of that place is determined by the fact that beneath its archaeological foundations it is a series of islands, an archipelago. I think you must be able to feel the marsh underneath it, the city's slippery silt base. Its stilts must be marvels. The wooden poles seemingly petrified, sealed in mud, not exposed to oxygen, preserved. But what of these can you see from Venetian footpaths? From which timber are they made? What trees once grew on the islands of the lagoon? Or were these uprights fashioned from the forests of the cast lands on the opposite shore of the Adriatic? Which birds nested in them and made them home? How long ago did humans first visit these islands? To cast a net or raid a nest? 
or simply to fulfil some curiosity. When I actually went there, I'd thought Venice was merely another classical city with a usual horde of churches and works of art. Even as I have travelled through Europe over the course of many repeated journeys, and have finally begun to understand something of the meaning of Europe's riches, I still don't get that excited by that side of it. I've often noticed certain figures carved into columns on the continent's majestic buildings, human forms which appear to be shouldering the burden of these enormous structures. And these seem to be the most apt symbols of classical architecture, for no antique palace or church could come into being without some form of exploitation of the European underclass or slaves from elsewhere. I don't mean to lecture. Maybe I'm just making excuses as to why I've so often faced one or another castle or cathedral and failed to be moved by it. When I thought of relocating to Venice, I had this idea that I could offer a certain kind of guided tour of the city. A fictional guided tour. In which I would tell tourists an entirely make-believe version of the city's history. I didn't mean for it to be a scam. I'd explained to my clients that I was going to speak anything but the truth. Furthermore, I came up with this philosophical concept that my tour would in some way tell a more valuable set of truths than a more authoritative version might. And I thought Venice was the perfect city for such outings. Without a doubt, mythologies manifest themselves there, in the church's murals and figurines, in the murky blue waters of the canals, in the echoes of the gondoliers' songs as they bounce off antiquated walls. For example, I have read that there is no consensus as to how Venice acquired its name. Among the several suggestions, there are historic words with meanings such as beloved, blue-green, and arrival. From these are narrative forms in my imagination. The story I could tell is not strictly true, but nor is it false and it sparkles with creative possibilities. From a few small abstract strokes such as these, I knew I could compose a picture. I would stand in front of the statues and reinvent the biographies of those patrons and saints. There would be convoluted tales to invent around the construction of the grand buildings, the piazzas, the famous restaurants. I could easily describe various versions of what might be going on quietly behind all the green shutters of the city's apartments. And what myriad yarns could be spun about the city's emblem, the winged lion, a mythological being that may well contain a thousand more myths in its belly like a Trojan horse, if I may confuse countries and mix mythologies. Whereas one writer has said he lost what he was looking for in Venice, encrusted as it was under so many other associations, so many waves of visitors and pilgrims, I would see that as an opportunity, a chance to cast my own speculative layer over the top. I have always found fiction easier than history. I guess many tourists meet Venice through the mediation of a tour guide. A tour guide is not entirely a trustworthy character. Believe me when I say that. But of course they may shine a light on certain facets of a place. We just have to remember that they also throw out a certain shadow as a consequence. Most tourists mosey slowly through the streets, 
Their passage paused frequently to read a plaque or check the price of a pair of shoes or some jewellery. I often find in cities that I walk too fast. I can barely interact with anything. It's like I'm being propelled at great velocity on my long legs, powered by all the stimulation. Yet as I walk, I accumulate impressions. I work myself into a state of dizziness, as in an abstract painting. There are snatches of sound that suddenly amplify in my ears. Colours seem to vibrate. Light saturates and illuminates unlikely landmarks. The people around me are so obviously strangers, isolated from my life. I return to my rented room with a crumpled look about me. Or I stop for a beer and hope my brain can catch up. If I see anything on those pedestrian journeys, it is per lo fadere. That is, through the linings, which I'm reliably informed is a Venetian term associated with going through those alleyways. I can take only a limited view of the endless complexity of that city. But perhaps that is how it always is for the visitor. In his beautiful book, Invisible Cities, Italo Calvino gives us a series of made-up metropolises of his own. One is called Phyllis. Many are the cities like Phyllis, he tells us, which elude the gaze of all, except the man who catches them by surprise. Phyllis sounds a lot like Venice. We only had English as a common language. It was one of our many worries. And I don't mean to make fun of my former lover when I recall the curious way that she pronounced the word melancholy, with the emphasis on the second syllable. To this day that pronunciation comes into my mind at frequent but unexpected intervals, in the ghost of her voice, an echo throughout the years. Melancholy. Perhaps I simply prefer it to the usual pronunciation, in which we emphasise only the first syllable and then rush through the rest of them dismissively. Or maybe it is merely one of those intricacies that we come to cherish in those we have loved. Melancholy was a mood that suited both of us just fine. And I am sure that even in the bright sunshine of late spring in Venice, we would have found the same sentiment. It had woven its way through every season of our relationship, in all sorts of settings, on both sides of the equator. For example, I have a prominent memory of a warm night in her home city, walking to the train station. I'd arrived by surprise a fortnight earlier, but now I had an assignment that would take me away again for some time. This was a project that would lead me on a long mountain hike, and I suddenly realised how preposterous I looked, lugging my enormous backpack past the carousers and canoodlers in those urban taverns and wine bars. It summed up the absurdity of leaving a lover indefinitely, to go and spend a week hoofing it alone in the mountains and then travel on. but the habit of coming and going proved to be too strong to resist. It was like an inbuilt rhythm, a metronome, a pendulum that swung always away, then back to home. That pervading melancholy which had seeped into our relationship 
maybe had something to do with this. Or perhaps we had been attracted to one another partly for this characteristic, having each seen that stubborn poetic sorrow in the other. Sometimes it was as though we were prematurely ageing, seeing ourselves wither away as if days passed as years, which had been a good fit in the European cities where we'd first encountered one another. The places around us were changing so rapidly, it felt as though we were unable to grasp them. And I often thought we were somehow on the outside of history as its hectic unravelling happened in our midst. But in Tasmania, the context for our partnership was in flux far less. We had as our backdrop an army of very old forests and rocky moorlands whose change and growth was at a far slower rate. It seemed, to me at least, that the angst that built up over the months together there was incongruous with the natural history. Some claim that Venice has the same almost immutable quality as an old-growth rainforest. The author Javier Marias wrote that Venice's history is its future too. The city's present appearance is also the city's future appearance, he said, and went on to add that since there the past is so immense, ubiquitous and overwhelming, it's like a mass that affects the gravity of the Venetians' relationship with what's ahead of it. But of course, although writers and artists may like to think that the storied visage of Venice can never be affected, nothing on earth entered this century without exposing itself to dramatic change. We now read of the overload of tourists like Attila's hordes, the cruise boats that smash carelessly into the city's quays, the threat that rising sea levels might swallow Venice whole. It's always very cheering to find that there are people and places that are always there, even though they're far away or seem to have been lost, continued this writer, Javier Marias. But I think that in this case he is mistaken. One cannot return to Venice as it was. Not any more. If ever one could. Another fine writer, the late Jan Morris, remembered a previous Venice. She was first there at the end of World War II. Venice was a dream then, hushed and empty in the aftermath of war, still imbued with the melancholy that so captivated its Victorian visitors and which bewitched me too, she said. I am tantalised by the thought of remembering a city after so many decades. It's astounding to think that one might still be able to seize something of themselves by recalling a sliver of one's life, a slice of time in a certain place, as Jan Morris does, evoking the tender quietness that she witnessed from a house on the island of Giardecca. Much was different in Jan Morris's life then. Later she looked over decades of immense personal change, as well as whole periods of history. But in her writing the memory resurfaces easily enough, squirming up through the depths of the past and emerging into the light. We can't know for sure how much that memory has deformed in the obscurity of those lost decades. But I don't reckon that matters entirely if only because it's inevitable. In Invisible Cities, Italo Calvino writes of a fictional but familiar city named Morelia. Here, travellers are encouraged by the natives to compare it to a past version of the same city. The tourist is expected to prefer the previous Morelia, but also to acknowledge that only because it has lost a certain amount of charm are we able to see that it had such charm in the past. Ultimately, 
the metropolis has the added attraction that, through what it has become, one can look back with nostalgia at what it was. Maybe we simply have a strong hunger for a sense of loss. Perhaps we are in fact chuffed to sense that people and places are irrevocably changing and to dwell on the slow and unquenchable sadness that they are gone. No wonder we experience such melancholy. Nothing lives up to the sepia-toned images we have in our memories. And that's how we have cultivated our gnawing sorrow. And I suppose it's not just with places that we do this, but with people as well. Or perhaps the way we associate people with places suffuses our memories and stuffs our heart with all-pervasive sentiments. In a beautiful passage of writing, W.G. Sebold once said that waking up in Venice is unlike waking up in any other place. He described the slow accumulation of sounds that begin the day there, gathering in stillness. But I have never experienced those sounds with my own ears. I have never actually known morning in that city only in my imagination. Yet there, as the pigeons' wings clatter together and the neighbours' shutters bump abruptly in their frames, I have woken up with my former lover in my arms, her dark hair falling around us both in erratic waves. She has turned to me and grinned, showing off that one slightly uneven front tooth. And I have bent to kiss the freckle on her arm. Eventually we would have disrupted the morning calm with a dispute. We had somewhat different temperaments at times, and would previously managed to ruin other lovely locations with her arguments, so why not an apartment in Venice as well? But in those moments in which I considered moving there with her, and on the sporadic occasions in which the thought has come back to me, and I've wondered if I shouldn't have simply smiled and impulsively said yes, 
In those imagined scenes, there are no arguments. There is only tranquility of the kind that W.G. Sibold has described. A shared serenity. Perhaps early in the morning, in the piazza before St. Mark's, I would have found some way to connect with the place. I picture myself there, with a sudden tear appearing in the veil of all my preconceptions of that city, a gap through which I could meet it purely. It couldn't last forever, but it doesn't need to. Later on the terrace, I'd explain the moment to my lover. We'd each be drinking a glass of red wine. Her lipstick might be the same shade as the Primitivo. The light would be leaning towards us through corridors of apartments, through the linings. In reality, I've only been there at St. Mark's once, some time before I met my lover, and only for a minute or two. For as long as it took to glance up at the cathedral, then continue walking across the paved piazza, indifferent to the grandeur. I later read of Venice that no other city in the world gathers you to itself, to its very heart, quite so abruptly. And that may be so but I felt just as easily spat out at the other end of the square. It was like the pathways of that city of memory bade me to meander further, beyond the piazza, beyond the canals, even beyond the Adriatic Sea. All those alleys were in fact hallways of thought, and although occasionally I might have found an opening in which to briefly rest with an image or a dream, when I re-entered the maze that connected one idea to another, I would never find anew the same roots. Had I stayed, I'd have been forced to rediscover another series of pathways with which to access the next destination. Yet as seems to always be the way, there would be nowhere in particular I would be hoping to reach. If you get sidetracked, wrote Joseph Brodsky. It's because being sidetracked is literally a matter of course in Venice. I think that I would have found that fact something of a relief. It was an afternoon in April more than ten years ago when I went to Venice. Rags of sun and shadow were stitched together over the city's walls as I rushed off back to the bus depot or railway station or wherever it was to get out of town. I was heading further east for the night, to the house of an acquaintance in Gorizia. There on the old Yugoslav border, I would convalesce for a week in the family garden under the auspices of a brown mountain and a grandmotherly figure who gave me her dying husband's leather shoes, which I inadvertently split on the cobblestones of another city less than a week later. By that point in time, I'd hitchhiked through several countries, following fast highways that had channeled me through the Alps, that I had repeated one of history's most majestic and monumental journeys in the passenger seat without even breaking a sweat or consulting a map, seemed to blaspheme the mountains. But we let ourselves be transported into the future by all sorts of mechanisms. Still, in my mind, I contend that I am only following footpaths constructed in the past. It's not that I'm a fatalist, that I believe life comes to us predetermined, but I have come to see just how much we must understand ourselves in the context of all that's come before us. How hard they are to escape, the old yarns that make up much of our identity. 
much we're shaped by place. By the fireplace in the first house I ever rented, I read about Venice. I had known of Venice in some way, but not as vividly as I did that night, however many thousand kilometres away I was from the city itself, and without any intention to visit it, not yet. I was 18 years old and I'd hardly ever left Tasmania. I sat close to the hearth. The flames flickered and the curtains were shut against an early darkness. I was reading a work of short fiction by an Australian writer named Delia Falconer. The story was called Aqua Alta. I haven't read it again since, and so I can only remember a few details from it. And what does remain in my mind will mostly have blurred with other descriptions and other stories. In this case, what I quickly conjure up are stains of mildew on exterior walls, and a mournful sentiment, the sense that Venice and the characters in the short story were all doomed. Water was rising and the stilts on which the whole thing was built wobbled precariously. That's all I can say for the plot of that story. We quickly get used to the fact that, as in this instance, the hours we've spent reading books eventually drain away, and we're left with barely anything to prove that we paid any attention to them or that they affected us at all. Seems like a lot of wasted time, eh? But maybe our memories are covered with splotches of mould where the water of these stories has sloshed into our minds and some moisture has remained. The mould is not necessarily representative of the story, but something has grown where it once was. And ever since I began my brief student years, I've taken notes from almost every book I've read. And in my archive, there's a single excerpt from Aqua Alta. It doesn't mention Venice. And yet the city's presence seems evident in the sentence that I've salvaged from that story, in which the narrator explains, I had left the man who turned his body from me in sleep and cried each night for a relationship he might have had when he was eighteen. Having never failed, it was a perfect dream that turned our days into pale limitations. Having then lived only eighteen years myself, and having had very little experience in romantic relationships of any kind then, I don't think I can have seen myself in that man. I did not yet understand that the past could sabotage the present, or that the dreams which dog us could usurp a future reality. But my intuition told me that this literary observation was important for me, so I copied it out. And now I wonder if I have not repetitively turned my body away from lovers ever since out of their grasp, reaching instead towards more demanding dreams.
when that girlfriend of mine flew from Europe to see me. She did so with both romantic and pragmatic intentions. We had started our affair with flings in cities on her continent, but our relationship needed wider and firmer foundations. In her mind, there was a chance that we could successfully learn to love one another. She was willing to spend a great deal of time and money on this chance, even though she had very little of the latter in particular. But I didn't really understand this. Naturally, I had also spent time and money on my reunions with her in Europe, and yeah, I sent myself pretty much broke on these trips as well. Yet I was not only pursuing love, I was also looking for new experiences in the extended networks of the European continent, pursuing curious desires that might turn into dreams, movements that could later contain memories. I was looking for ways to understand my life on Earth, a life shared with the populations of many countries, so distant from my reality as to be entirely fascinating. I think my girlfriend still believed in our love as the final days of her visa drew near, although I know that her faith was wavering. Neither of us had any real plans for the coming months. Venice was pretty close to a viable option. It wouldn't be an end to our concerns. We would still need to create a new plan when the next season came around. I reckon in the long term there probably wasn't a lot of hope, even if I had been a better candidate for partnership. But for a moment, as I imagined myself on a terrazzo in Venice... There was sense in giving it a chance. Yes, Venice. I could have my coffee in the morning in the sun and look down as the pedestrians began to multiply. I could walk along the canals, stand with the cormorants on the docks and dream of the ancient history of that city. I could sink into fiction into pictures, into fables. From the great lagoon of my imagination, islands would spring up. My psyche could well be enriched by this new setting, so striking and strange, so far from home. What's more, I thought, was that Venice was so near to so many places that I truly wanted to see. I could hike in the Dolomites and the Corinthians and the Julian Alps and visit my brother in Bavaria and see the cities of Bologna and Milan and Pisa. Even then I saw just how wrong-headed this kind of thinking was. All these extensions of the imagination were acts of sabotage. I was looking elsewhere and what my lover was really asking was that I would envision, finally, a space where the two of us could share a life. I was turning my back to her once more, in search of another perfect dream, which would lead anyway to another array of dreams. Or rather a disarray of dreams, for there would be another range of mountains beyond the alpine peaks. Alleyways would lead to a square, a space from which more alleyways emerged, like tributaries that always changed, that rearranged themselves into the new sequences of the next journeys. I knew then that I would not move to Venice. And a few days later, in a manner that lacked any of the dignity that the moment deserved, we said goodbye, and my lover made her way alone to the airport in the rain. The memory inevitably prompts a deep swirling shame in my belly. But in the end I have given up everything in order to allow myself to pursue the journeys of my dreams. It has proven hard to let anyone else come with me. 
Some people tell me that such choices will later come back to bite me. They seem convinced I'll be full of regrets. I'm not so sure of that. Not yet. But it took me far too long to accept within myself that the pursuit of stories was what I really wanted. And it seems I may have caused a bit of hurt in the meantime. I keep looking for that crack through the linings through which we truly meet others. But how hard it is to find. <laughs>